All right, just about 1,500 of you. We'll get started. So welcome, Gigi. Is it Professor Gigi Foster? And she is here from oh, zipping over from Australia to join us tonight. Just bring up your, your bio that I've got here. <laughs> Gigi, by the way, you don't need to engage in all the silliness of a professor's title. <laughs> Lovely, thank you. All right, so everybody, our, our guest tonight is Professor Gigi Foster. Uh, and she's the Professor and Director of Education with the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School in Australia. As one of Australia's leading economics com communicators, Professor Foster writes for both the academic and popular press and is regularly interviewed on mainstream television and radio programs across the country and quoted in national print media about economic matters. Her regular media appearances include co-hosting the the Economists, a national economics talk radio program and podcast series now in its fifth season with Peter Martin AM on ABC Radio National. And she's got a new book out that she might show us in a minute um, that is available on their website, which is uh, www.thegreatcovidpanic.com. So welcome, everyone. And I'll just um, turn the chat off uh, into so that you can talk to us, but... Um, we won't have a whole lot of fuss going on in the chat. It can get a bit distracting. <laughs> yeah, so welcome. I'm so pleased to have you here tonight. It's um, been really great watching some of your videos and interviews over the last few days to prepare for this interview. And I, I listened to the Leighton Smith one that you did maybe yeah. a few weeks ago. That was really interesting too. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's, it's just terrific what you guys are doing with this platform. And um, I'm so happy to see so many people logging on. I think I'm sure that you're giving a, a real breath of, of hope and light to, to many people who are living in um, these dark times. So thank you very much. That's also what we try to do with this book. So here it is, The Great Cover Panic, um, reasonably thick. Um, my copy with little you know tags because I've been having book launches at which I sometimes do readings from excerpts of the book um, and I just got a big shipment today is so on my doorstep actually I have to wait till I got help to bring it in um, for when people start coming home um, and then I can send out small copies to uh, small amounts of copies to people in New Zealand or, or wherever else it's um it's a one-man show publisher uh, house so we don't have a big distribution network but uh, it is now on Amazon and it's also on Kindle so lovely oh, that's great me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So, um, if you need to find it, I think we'll pop the we'll pop the link in the chat. Um, hopefully, one of our helpers can do that at the end. So, um, where to start? I'm just I'm thinking about last year when all of this kicked off. One of the first things that I wanted to know, like I think it was in early April, so we had just gone into lockdown in, in March here in New Zealand, and. So I decided to send an Official Information Act request to our government to find out what they had done in terms of looking at the cost-benefit analysis for um, lockdown policy. Yep. And I wanted to know what the relevant um, research and calculations that, that was based on, if they could share those with me. And of course, it came back in time and, you know, it was basically we don't have anything like that. And I, I, sort, of, I sort of thought that it might be that case, but I was quite shocked to see that it was really based on nothing and that they hadn't looked at, you know, what the cost of doing this was yep. for the society. Yeah. yeah. So I was just wondering what your observation has been regarding the basis of, of these lockdowns in Australia. And um, have you been, uh, have uh, these been able to be defended at all by your authorities, your government? Yeah. 
So, I mean, I, I was similarly perplexed in um, late March and early April that there was no justification given in the standard language of policy, which is an economic cost-benefit analysis. Um, and I was waiting and waiting. I kept expecting, well, they must be working on it, and you know, they just they just haven't produced it yet for the public. They don't want to, you know, put something out there that might have to be amended later on. They want to make sure their estimates are right. Something. Um, boy, was I naive. I mean, they just, you know, I waited for months. And finally, I decided that I, I had an invitation by one of our MPs to speak at the um, Victorian Parliament, the Public Accounts and Estimates Committee, in August of 2020. And I thought, well, I'm going to use that as the opportunity to sort of show what a cost-benefit analysis of this policy should look like. So give them a draft kind of proof of concept. Here's how you should do it. Um, and I'm lucky in that one of my co-authors on the Great COVID Panic actually was working at the time in a team at the London School of Economics that had just created in late 2019 a new currency which was very suited to measuring the kinds of costs that lockdowns were inflicting upon the people. And it's called the well-be, the well-being year. We talk about it in the book a lot. And so I felt like, okay, well, great. I'll, I'll, you know, basically use that currency to try to estimate these big categories of costs. There are many other costs that I didn't actually cost out, but I just listed because I said, look, I've got a full-time job. You know, this is the government's job, but here's how you would do it. And tabled it to the to the Victorian Parliament. Also, you know, took questions and answers about the lockdown policies and had a statement and everything. But um, as far as I know, that that draft was not taken up by the by the government at all in Victoria or other states or the Commonwealth here in Australia. And what I know of uh, other you know resistance fighters in the country is very similar to what you just say about your Freedom of Information Act request. There have been multiple FOI requests made, and every time when the response is received, it says either. Um, there was no such conversation or there was no such thing that happened. So we can't, there's no material to give you. Or it says, um, we'll give you what we've got that has these words in it, but we're going to redact anything of substance because it was never announced to the public that we were having these discussions. Ergo, there is no requirement for the government to release the information. <laughs> so <laughs> one or the other of those things is what we've been told as well. So, I mean, it is just offensively mm awful right and and a betrayal of the people and a complete betrayal of the roles of the politicians right and you know this just just demonstrates so many of the problems that we that we were already having even before COVID hit and we were just particularly vulnerable to having this kind of extreme response and very damaging response because of many of the social and political and and psychological factors that we talk about in the in the great COVID panic so it is very much you know, this, this book, very much our attempt as, as broad-minded social scientists, basically, not just economists, but broad-minded social scientists to write a treatise that tries to reckon with all of these various different phenomena that have fed into the catastrophe of the panic. And, and we try to then use our understanding of those phenomena to, to try to chart a way out and, and suggest things that our societies can do to try to immunize ourselves against having this kind of problem in the future, no pun intended. Um, and, and certainly, you know, that, that has a lot to do with changing institutions and the political class being uh, made up mainly of career politicians is definitely a part of the problem. Yeah, it definitely feels like that here too. We've we've basically got nobody, you know. That um, <laughs> there's nobody that's advocating for any kind of sense here in New Zealand. It's crazy. Yep. Uh, so, um, what I've noticed, and what everybody would have noticed over the last year and a half, has been this kind of concept of you've got this lockdown narrative. You've got lockdown on one side, or let it rip on the other, and there really is no middle ground. Yeah. And you know, like we hear this, like, so I guess that's a criticism that you might get 
Oh, yeah. So, I mean, well, again, this is characterized thinking in this era. It has been extremely binary. People's thinking uh, has been basically almost the, the Twitter version of thought or, or the Insta Instagram version, which is, you know, somebody says one small thing or puts up one small post and immediately gets categorized into either good or bad by the person's mind who's reading it, right? And, and indeed that kind of training that we've subjected our minds to because of social media, which was happening way before COVID has really primed us to have that kind of uh, shoot from the hip reaction and not think deeply and not think in, in the gray zone that is the world, that is where we live. You know, we live in this complex, multi-layered, multi-dimensional gray life, right? Where it's very rare that you get an extreme of anything. And, and it's only because people are overwhelmed with information and are petrified and have been subjected to this propaganda and brainwashing and been basically part of a crowd dynamic that has taken over people's thinking process that mm -hmm. they, you know, that they make these kinds of snap judgments rather than actually engaging in thought. So you may have noticed when you try to confront people with rational arguments um, on COVID issues, vaccine issues, whatever, um, you know, you often just, you, you almost feel like you're not talking to a person with a brain. There's no engagement, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very similar from my perspective to conversations that I've had. I'm, I'm a secular humanist. And I, when I was a high schooler, I've had conversations with people who were very, very religious, a very, uh, you know, theist, <clears throat> and, and wanting to convert me to their faith. And I would have conversations with them saying, I don't see a God. Where is the God up there? Where is this person? And, and or look down, there's no, where is the devil? Where is the hell? And we were just completely talking at cross purposes. Their belief, which I completely respected, and I had no problem with it, but their belief was not about rational argumentation. Their belief was belief. It was, it was spiritual. It was about their psychological needs. And everybody has those psychological needs. We all have innate religious tendencies. I'm very convinced of this. Even myself as a secular humanist, I'm very spiritual. Um, and I've most, many of my friends, if not most, are, are you know, believers in, in something supernatural. But, you know, when you start using that response to craft policy, in the real world, that is very, very dangerous because then essentially you're, you're hijacking the machinery of the state and our institutions to satisfy your own religious and psychological needs. And, and you do that in a group, which is what we've had during this period, these crowds, these herds that have pushed for these kinds of destructive policies. That's just like it's witch hunts. It's, it's uh, you know, 1930s Germany. It's the, um, you know, the Dreyfus affair. There are these times in history when we've seen this exact same kinds of behavior, uh, which has produced incredible destruction on the back of, of ideological zeal. Uh, and, and really the solution to it is to get the crowd to disband, which is not easy. That takes a long time. And reassure people that we've, you know, we've got this virus's number, try to reduce the fear and promote other things that are important, you know, mm -hmm. joy and life, you know, things that we've just kind of forgotten in this COVID period because, uh, you know, everything else during, you know, the, the membership in a crowd like this is pushed aside because of the single-minded focus on the one obsession of the crowd. So that's been very creepy and, and also very educative to see, but, uh, but that's, you know, a big part of the dynamic that we're living through now. And still that crowd has not disbanded here in Australia or in New Zealand very clearly. Yeah, yeah, it's been quite, um, quite incredible to watch and some of the conversations that I've had over the last few weeks have been really eye-opening and seeing that kind of that mentality and in, in real life play, you know, like it's yep. just like, wow, you're not getting through to some people, like that there's just, 
it doesn't matter how irrational or logical their arguments are, it's just, they just will cling to them. Absolutely. And, and this is what I, I fear. I've been saying this in my book launches. I fear that, um, you know, the main thing people will lose sight of is that in order to get out of this situation, we must learn to communicate with each other across the divide. We must learn to do that. And the efforts to do that have got to come from the resistance because the people who are in the crowd right now do not understand what has happened to them. They don't understand. I mean, the person who's brainwashed cannot take perspective on that, right? They don't understand how it's happening, right? And they've just used the beautiful machinery of their well-educated brains to rationalize what the crowd has done, right? That's, that's, I mean, usually in normal times, that's actually the function of our brains a lot of the time anyways, to rationalize what we already wanted to do. But they have turned that machinery towards justification of these massively destructive policies. And there's so much information, quote unquote, out there that, you know, with, with media and everything going around the world in a split second these days you know you can pick your story you can pick something that looks like it'll support your your side right and so you know facts have not been scarce during this period at all what's scarce is common sense right but but the facts themselves are available for any you know selectively picking brain to just you know grab some things that look like they make a nice stew you know this will support my story and they just do that right so so we need to learn and we need to be the ones to do it because we still have working brains we need to learn how to communicate to these poor people. And I really think, you know, we need to see them as, you know, our brothers and sisters. They, they have been subjected to tragedy as well. This has been psychological manipulation. This has been, um, you know, disastrous loss of mental capacity and, and huge emotional. And what, what will happen if these people look face to face in the fear in the mirror of what they have done and who they have been during this period you know we may have people living with ptsd for the rest of their lives to be very confronting so so you know we have to be sensitive to that and we have to work out ways to communicate that don't simply you know carry the 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 message and the uh, the hate that we may feel right for people who have done this or been part of this right i mean there is there is the temptation to give into that hate but you know that's just not that can't be part of the solution reconciliation yes admission of the damages yes and again that's what we do in this book i mean chapter five is all about the tragedy what have we done to ourselves but but not hatred and it's not eye for an eye it is turn the other cheek and we've got to learn how to do that and and give a message to our sisters and brothers saying we understand that you have been subjected to this awful thing as well and we need to move forward together so please take my hand and let's let's try to talk about this mm. yeah that's great and we, we're just seeing more and more of these people that are so-called waking up you know I met somebody today who was saying you know they've only just recently really figured out what's going on and it's been quite you know it's rapid when someone has to catch up at such a, a, a fast pace you know we've had those of us that have been aware of this for, well, beyond COVID, um, have, you know, it's been slow and you've kind of been able to see what's coming up and, and digest it and all of that. But people who are just waking up now, you have to have empathy for that. It must be really, really difficult. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, families have been torn asunder, you know, friendship groups have collapsed. All of us have lost friends and respect mm -hmm. people in our workplaces. I'm not sure our level will ever be really accepted the way that I was before in the economics community in Australia, for example, you know, <laughs> kind of thinking about maybe I'll change jobs. Now, I, and I think I probably will still be an economist, but, um, you know, some of the most vociferous advocates of lockdowns work in my department, you know, 
So, I mean, it's, it's really been challenging for all of us. And, and then on top of that, some people are now losing their jobs because of their, their you know, lack of desire to take this, this inoculation. Um, and so it's a very, um, you know, painful period for everybody socially. And yes, we need to work on, on communication across the divide. And that's just something, as I say, the resistance has to do it. And so, you know, to the extent that, I mean, I love being on programs like this because, you know, there's so many people who are like, oh yes, this is the message. This is what we want to have. That's great. But to be honest with you, I hate to say it, I would rather be on Joe Rogan's podcast. I would rather be on, you know, Channel 7 Nightly News or something, right now, because that's the audience yes. who, you know, needs to be reached. We need to reach them. And, and the, you know, you know about the cancellation and the, the censorship on mainstream media now and Facebook and so many other places. I mean, we had Facebook posts for our book being deleted when they first came out being censored because it wasn't in line with, the, you know, whatever community standards. Um, so, you know, Big Brother is, you know, it's a real thing, right? Um, and so, you know, we need to work around that. We need to find ways to do that. And that's one of the reasons that I've tried in my, in my public appearances and as much as I can to be, you know, absolutely down the line, do not ever say anything that can possibly be, uh, you know, critiqued on factual grounds. And I have not been critiqued on factual grounds, right? It never I will. Many people come to me during this period being like, I hate you, you know, you are a neoliberal from cannot death cult warrior, go back to the US, you know, all that. But in terms of people actually challenging what I'm saying, because I choose conservative assumptions for things, even in my cost benefit analysis draft, Victoria, I, I elected to, to assume that lockdowns would save people. <laughs> There's no evidence of that. And in fact, now we know that they don't, right? But at the time, so many governments were doing it. And I felt like, well, I have no, I mean, my best guess is that they're not saving many, but let's just assume that they would save some because we've got to give a shot to the other side, right? Give something. And so, you know, that kind of thing, then, you know, you can't really, it's harder to, to, to really attack that credibly. And so that's been an interesting thing as well. And I'm trying to do that so that mainstream media will at some stage, you know, whenever the, the door opens, whenever the tide turns enough, will at some stage think, okay, she's not a nut case. She's not a tinfoil hat, you know, <laughs> nut job. We can afford to have her on the program and she's not going to tank our ratings. Mm. Sorry, I've just looked at a, a little comment that came in from Libby. She's saying to ask you about the apparent low suicides. Yeah. Here in New Zealand, um, anecdotally, we're hearing, you know, wicked, horrible numbers that are happening within the suicide space. Yeah. It's not, I don't think it's being reported. Yeah. They have a reporting system that's very delayed. And so, in terms <clears throat> of the costs of, yeah. I, that's what I was wanting to ask you was about the, quali the qualities and the well bees yeah. and the, that sort of that side of the costs of lockdown if you could explain that I'm, I'm assuming that lots of people might not know what a quality or a well-be is yeah but sure. I found them really interesting concepts yeah okay so I'll take you through the very brief uh you know technical discussion of it so that you have some sense of what you know what I'm trying to do so basically the main problem is that when you engage in a cost-benefit analysis in normal times you have to use some kind of currency that um you can denominate both the costs and the benefits in. And usually that currency is dollars, usually. Um, sometimes it's these things called qualities, which is quality adjusted life years. So if some of the costs or benefits are in terms of people's quality of life, um, people's sort of length of high quality life, you can say, okay, well, we're gonna save this many people. Um, at this age, we would expect them to have this many years of healthy life remaining. Okay, well, there's a quality you know, content that I can, I can put into my CBA. The problem is that during this period, a lot of the kinds of costs that we were 
inflicted on or that we had inflicted on us were really not in terms of like people literally being killed. So suicides is a good example because you know, you, you're right, we don't really see a huge spike up in suicides or we haven't yet. Um, and, and, you know, yet we know that there's so much suffering out there. Now, it could be that there's some record keeping problems for sure, but it is also true that Australia was reasonably quick off the mark in delivering mental health support for people who are struggling. So you get the acute support, right? You, like if you're literally about to jump off a bridge, you can call a number and somebody will talk to you. And I, I do think those are effective um, interventions. Generally, my mother was a psychologist, so I have a bit of insight in psychology. So I do think those are effective. Um, and so to the extent that we were we were there at the acute moment, we may have prevented you know many more suicides that would have happened otherwise. Um, but there's still all of this mental health suffering that's not so acute. It's just, you know, like people get depressed, they get super anxious, they self-harm, they end up in the hospital, but they don't, you know, they don't really want to kill themselves. They just sort of self-harmed, you know, as if that's a small thing, right? But it's, yeah. it's not the acute, I'm about to jump off a bridge thing, right? And so we needed a currency to capture that. So the, the beauty of the well-being year is that it can capture that sort of thing. So the well-being year, the well-be, is built from a question that's asked in social science surveys around the world, which is worded something like the following, overall, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? And you answer on a scale of zero to 10, right? So not satisfied at all, completely satisfied. Now, an average healthy person in normal times in a developed Western country like Australia will answer on average about an eight on that scale. Whereas the answer that equates roughly to the perception of being dead, like I would rather, I would, I would sort of, I'm indifferent between being dead or being alive at that level of satisfaction is about a two on that scale. So if you think about it that way, then we have this sort of, you know, scale of satisfaction points, right? So this sort of incremental one, two, three, four, five, and we define a well-be as being one increment on that scale lived, enjoyed for one person for one year. Now, if you think about the eight and the two again, if you take the difference between that, it's six, right? And so that is kind of the amount of satisfaction or you know, life, joy, well-being, however you'd like to put it, that is enjoyed by a person living in, you know, for a year or whatnot. And so you can say, well, uh, roughly that number, that six counts, right, of well-bees is roughly equivalent to one year of healthy life. Well, one year of healthy life is also a quality adjusted life year of one, a quality of one, right? right. So once you have that translation, so you've got well-bees on the one hand, which can capture these smaller changes in life satisfaction, you've got qualities, which are more draconian sort of, you know, year of life lived at a healthy amount or less healthy for a little bit less. Um, so, you know, zero to one, a quality takes a value from zero to one every year. Um, depending on how healthy you are. Once you have that translation, all then you need is to be able to translate those things into dollars. And we've got that translation because in normal times, again, the Australian government, the New Zealand government, other Western governments pay a certain amount for equality from drug companies for various different kinds of illnesses and, and injuries, right? And, and interventions and stuff like that. And so they'd say to a drug company, look, if you can give us one quality, we'll buy it as long as the cost is 50,000 Australian dollars or less. That's about the price point that, that Australia uses. Obviously the richer the country, the higher the price points, right? The higher, the more they'll pay for equality. That's mm -hmm. why we want GDP per capita to go up, right? It's, that's why economists have barracks for that. It's not that we think money is important. It's that what money can by is important, which is human well-being. And so, you know, if we take that translation, then that $50,000 equals one quality equals six well-bees, then we're cooking with gas. Then we know 
okay, if I enumerate the various costs that I think these lockdowns are having on people based on reports from surveys, based on the data of you know, deaths and, and businesses going out of business and all, children being disrupted from school, all that stuff. In one of these things, it can be dollars, it can be qualities, it can be well-bees, eventually I can put them all into the same spreadsheet basically, and then I can compare apples to apples. And that's essentially what I did in very brief form for the Victorian Parliament and what I'm actually working on right now for all of Australia. I'm, I'm expanding that and extending it for the basically the whole COVID period. And I hope to have uh, final estimates and sort of a, a distributable version of that that we've got a 62 page draft at the moment um, by the end of the year. So and I feel like we need to have that for the record, you know, it's for my own, mm. for my own peace of mind and also just for the Australian record. So what would some of the things be that you'd be measuring in terms of the the costs of, of lockdown that people might not necessarily consider. Yeah. So one of the big costs is, of course, the, the mental health damage that we've done by locking people in their homes and away from their families, um, out of their jobs, the places where they, they drew meaning uh, for their lives, basically, um, and for their effort in life. Um, and those kinds of costs, again, are, are reflected in the fact that when you lock people down, and we know this from a survey uh, in the UK and also one in Australia, when you lock them down, you basically create a loss of about 0.5 on that satisfaction scale I was talking about before. And so the longer the lockdown lasts, of course, the longer that suffering lasts, and that can be captured in the currency of well-bees the well-being year, right? That's what I was just talked about. And of course, you know, that's on average. Some people will have a much higher loss. Some people will have no loss, you know, or even benefit from the lockdowns, right? I mean, many people like me with stable, secure jobs, a good income, happy families, all that stuff, you know, I mean, I've got money in the bank and, you know, I get paid way too much to do what I do. Like I've been fine, right? It's not me that, you, that we should be worried about, right? These changes have, have really badly affected the people mm -hmm. who were already disadvantaged initially, right? Which is another reason to want to punch the wall about this because mm -hmm. the people making the policies, right? Are not the ones who are generally paying the costs, you know? The biggest costs have been paid by people who are pretty much voiceless, you know? Yeah. Um, including the people in the developing world, of course. I mean, don't even get me started on that. That's just hideous. Um, so in the, in the Victorian parliament draft that I gave them, um, I didn't even consider the developing world. I was just looking at uh, Australia. Um, so that's one, that's a big one. Um, and that's basically just well-being losses. Another big one is um, the loss of future government expenditure and also private expenditure because of the GDP losses, right? So when you stab your economy in the stomach, you, you delay and uh, crowd out expenditure um, because of the fact that you've just stopped economic activity, right, of various sorts. And expenditure by governments in developed countries is kind of the biggest driver of extended and higher quality life. Right. So when we spend more on healthcare and education and infrastructure and you know research and development and everything else that the government spends money on, we benefit by having longer and happier, more productive, more you know thriving sort of existences on this planet. And so we are sacrificing that when we stab our economy in the stomach. Right. So that's the number two and probably the second biggest cost as well. The other ones that are obvious and that we probably I'm sure everybody on the call would think of these already. One of them is crowded out healthcare for anything other than COVID. So when you hijack your healthcare system to just deliver COVID support, um, you crowd out other things, right? I mean, resources are scarce. I'm in the dismal science and that's one of our major pillars, right? Everything has an opportunity cost. Anything that you do 
implies you're not doing something else, right? And so when we focus so much on COVID, we are not focused on cancer, dementia, diabetes, heart disease, everything else that normally kills us, right? And those things need preventative care, they need acute care, they need, um, you know, elective surgeries, they need all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and so, you know, we are basically going to feel the cost of that throughout the coming months and years as the people who didn't get the cancer screening, for example, start dying. And we've already seen that actually in the cancer deaths and the dementia deaths, particularly. And the dementia is particularly heartrending because it's those elderly people who were locked away from their families, you know, supposedly for their benefit, who then didn't get the socialization and their dementia, you know, was, was accelerated. And I, I'm, I'm personally very aware of this because my own mother had dementia, not during this period, she died in 2015, but you know, I saw up close how much socialization, you know, staves off the progress of the disease, right? And so when you lock people away, of course, you're gonna get that result. Um, and then another one, of course, that I've studied as well, being an education economist by training is the cost to children from disrupting their school. So uh, I have a paper that I published last year about um, you know, trying to estimate the, the costs, only a very, very small amount of the costs, which are just in the area of foregone wages of the children who have had their schooling disrupted during this period. When they join the labor force, how much are they going to be uh, not paid that they otherwise would have been paid because wow. of that re reduction in human capital, basically. And even under very conservative assumptions whereby online learning is 90% as productive, um, at generating human capital as face-to-face -face learning, which I think is very conservative, you know. Um, but if you if you assume that, then we're still talking about uh, you know fifty million dollars easily just off the bat. Um, and then of course it's not including all of the other costs that are not just about wages, right? About being happy people, about being properly socialized, having good habits, you know, having um, exercise and all the physical benefits that come from that, having, you know, solid friendships that formed in school, all these things. So those are just a few of the costs, right? Now there, there's a lot of other ones that I could talk about. And a lot of them are kind of, you know, in the area of things like what have we done to our society? You know, we've, we've, we've become a society which is willing to segregate people, willing to discriminate against people, willing to sacrifice its freedom, uh, for supposedly safety. And, you know, of course, that phrase about the, the man who will sacrifice his freedom for safety deserves neither. Right? Um, we've just violated so many of the principles of the Enlightenment and, and liberal democracy. Right? And so just seeing that that's got to be a cost of some sort. But I, you know, I don't know if I put a dollar figure on it. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty intense. And I, as a mother, I've sort of looked over this last year and a half, just going, God, the, the amount of debt that our countries are must be clocking up and yep. how that is going to impact our children you know, yes. like, no one has to pay this back right so so that's the other thing and it's interesting because you know right before covid hit there was a bit of a resurgence in this thing called modern monetary theory i don't know how much you're familiar with this but this is a, a macro kind of fad um, and it basically contends and there is some truth to it contends that a currency issuing institution like a national government doesn't have to balance its books like it doesn't have to have its receipts equal its outlays as a, as a household does, for example, because, you know, that currency issuing body can just issue more currency to cover the debt. Right. And of course, this is technically true. And this is why, you know, a, a government can run a surplus or a deficit in a given year and not have the world come crashing down and they don't get to debtor's prison or whatever. Right? Um, and people will still lend to it, you know, um, mm -hmm. but eventually there is a limit to how much people will put trust and stock in the, in the currency and the goodwill and the word basically of a sovereign country that keeps just printing to pay off its debt, right? And that is, that is the fundamental issue. Eventually it happens. It may not happen immediately. It may not happen in five years. Um, and if the rest of the world is doing it, maybe it happens even more slowly, but 
at some point, and even if it's not for an accounting reason, for a political reason, that debt will have to be paid off and will crowd out other things. So that's another element of why we will not see as much government spending in the future on other line items, right? And by the way, if we were gonna go and spend $500 billion on something, my personal choice wouldn't have been, let's tread water because of this you know, stab in the stomach that we've done to ourselves. My personal choices would have been figure out ways to reduce inequality, figure out ways to increase indigenous healthcare, figure out ways to support children in early childhood, figure out ways to do so many other things that are so much more valuable for human well-being yeah. than simply treading water and then being able to say, well, look, we've treaded water for two years. I mean, where's the- Yeah, where and this is successful. <laughs> there's just no sense. There's no sense. No, it's just absolutely none. I'm looking at people are saying you've got some great insights in the comments. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back to the comment that you made about the crowds. I found that quite interesting um, about how uh, being belonging to the crowd is what's sort of shaping the uh, experiences in terms of people outsourcing their thinking and accepting these conflicting narratives and resisting the facts and the truth and all of that kind of thing and how we can break through to these people to actually get them to sort of see what is, is happening. Yeah, look, I mean, on the, on the latter question, I don't have a perfect magic bullet. Um, I, I would have I shared it immediately if I did have it, but I do think it's important to understand the dynamic that's happening. It is not that the people you're looking at when you have these conversations are evil most of the time. They're not evil. <laughs> they, are, they are good people at heart, but they have been captured. Their brains have been captured by this crowd dynamic. And what the crowd does, it, it's basically, it's defined as a group of people who are all obsessed about one thing. And that's the only thing that really matters. And once you are a member of the crowd, once the crowd dynamic takes hold, you, you basically have outsourced your morality and your sense of what is true to the crowd. So it's no longer existing in your brain, right? So you're not actually thinking when you get you know, new information, is this true, is this not true? You're not really thinking. What you're thinking instinctively, almost unconsciously, your conscious mind won't be aware of this, but unconsciously you're thinking, does this or does this not accord with what I think the crowd thinks on this issue right now? And not even what the crowd thought yesterday <laughs> or what am I thinking tomorrow, just right now, right? That's the important thing. And it can change from day to day, which you see, for example, in, yes. in artistic writing like Orwell, right? You know how in, the, in 1984, the, the um, Winston, right? The protagonist relates how the pronouncements from the government, the totalitarian government shift from day to day. They're completely inconsistent. You know, like on one day it'll be, we are at war with Oceana. The next one, we are at peace and always have been with Oceana, right? And, <laughs> and nobody notices, right? Yeah. <laughs> nobody notices. And the reason is because they are not actually using the machinery in their brain to try to determine some notion of fixed truth. They're just not, right? The crowd is the thing that sets the truth. The crowd is the thing that sets morality. The same thing happened in the 1930s in Germany, right? Yeah, and, but it's something Any other kind of examples. Now, people don't like it when people- They don't like that. Uh, two examples, but I also feel like if we can't talk about it, we're going to repeat it. You know? I know, I mean, right? Aspect of that where I, 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 like, I understand it's horrible. I mean, it, the suffering was hideous and awful in the Holocaust. And I absolutely, the reason to talk about it is because I recognize that. And I don't want that to happen again, right? And I'm sure that that's the case for 90% of the people who are using that analogy in these conversations about COVID. And it's just a very easy gotcha moment for people who are, who are defending lockdowns to say, oh, you've offended me because you've talked about the Second World War. This is nowhere like that, right? I mean, I'm sure that at the time of the Second World War or even before then, like in the 30s, again, 
Anybody who said, hey, this is feeling a little bit like a witch hunt. This is feeling a little, they would have been shot down, right? They would have been, oh, don't, don't call us witch hunt. We're not like that. We are, we're beyond that, you know, oh, and why would you even, you know, that's what an inappropriate thing. Any means of cancellation and bullying and silencing would have been used just like it's used now. This just happens to be an excuse, right? I think people are mistaken when they hear that, that they think that we're comparing now to gas chamber time. And that's yeah, not, I know. That's it's not, not what we, we're sort of saying. That saying. We need nope. to go back a few years and see how, how did people get to that point. Exactly. And that's why I say looks, 1930s. That's right. So it's yeah. sort of mid, mid to late 1930s Germany. That's kind of, you know, where we're going. And, and there have been so many times during this period that I have felt like, like I've, I've replayed Schindler's List in my head so much. I, I should watch the movie again, right? But I've, I've thought about that movie so much, right? And the various characters in there and just, I mean, it still, it just makes me, still makes me like, you know, emotional just thinking about that and thinking about, you know, the interviews that I've heard from people who are Holocaust survivors, you know, in Israel now, you know, who have talked about this whole situation and, and you know, all the things I learned when I was in history school and, and you know, high school. I mean, people need to remember, we are still human beings. We may have lived through that and think that it can't happen again. You are wrong. It can happen again because we have human nature inside us. And this proclivity to form a crowd is not something that gets stamped out with education. Some of the most educated, high IQ people that I know during this period have been swept along, you know, at, at extreme speeds by the whole crowd dynamic. And if anything, they are some of the worst crowd perpetrators and, and you know, people who are, are vigilantes on behalf of the crowd because they have such big, you know, smart brains, they can use them to come up with even more grandiose and fancy sounding explanations. They can use, you know, mathematics that nobody else can understand and put out these fancy papers that people think, oh, I guess that must be true because I don't understand it, you know? And we talk about that, by the way, in this book. So we talk about the, the failures of science during this period. And, and we use macroeconomics as a prime example, unfortunately. Um, but many other bits of science as well that, you know, essentially just failed us during this period. And, and of course, some of our ideas about how to get out of this include revisions to how science is done. Good. Yeah, it's definitely well needed, isn't it, at this point in time? Uh, it, other people talk about the whole um, comparison to apartheid. And yeah. I was reading something the other day that was talking about how actually, you know, in some ways what we are coming up against is, is worse if it goes the way it looks like it's going to go because you know our prime minister here in New Zealand is pretty much telling us we can go to the doctor the supermarket and the gas station you know if you're not if you choose to stay unvaccinated Uh, whereas you know if you look back to those other times at least they had other you know they had other things to go they had their own cafes or their own you know like it's it's well, it's very it's horrendous. Yes. So, so I, I like that um, that analogy, and it again is it's one where you can you know sometimes trigger people and they they shut you down for for making it. But you know, as an American myself, I, I am reminded of the, the sort of segregated South. Um, the history of the segregated South, where, as you say, there was a network of uh, facilities, shall we say, for people who were one type, and then there was another network for people of another type. And mm-hmm. um, you know, the interesting thing there is that the 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 network for the the you know the excluded type, you know, the sort of inferior supposedly type, were was not one that would accept the other type. Right. And vice versa. So you're like, if you were white, you didn't go to the black, you know, cinemas. If you were black, you didn't go to the white cinemas. But, you know, there wasn't sort of a mixed. The, the difference now is that when we have some of this starting to happen here in Australia, there is the possibility of starting networks of businesses which say we do not discriminate. 
Mm. You can come regardless of what your status is, because, you know, we, we can't be discriminating against the vaccinated either, right? You don't want to discriminate against anybody. I mean, that, that's, that's the ideal, right? So, you know, it's not like, well, there'll just be the vaccinated only and the unvaccinated only. It's that, no, we just, we want to to bring to bear the forces of the market, which will crush discrimination because they always do in the end, right? Discrimination is costly. It does not survive market forces, yes. it does not survive competition. So as soon as there is, you know, enough of a, of a critical mass of businesses that reject this discriminatory regulation and say, I'm, I'm willing to open my doors to everybody, then those businesses will get more business um, because they will. Now, the problem is of course being fined at the moment, right? And so, you know, in terms of how to raise money to help those people pay the fines, then we have a problem because that is an additional cost, which then works against the forces of the market to crush discrimination. Because again, the whole point is that discrimination is costly, so that should force it out of the market. But if you're finding the people who don't discriminate, you know, that's just something that we never anticipated in economic models of discrimination, you know, <laughs> but it's happening, right? Um, so, you know, so I don't have, a, again, a perfect solution to that. I, I do, you know, I am, I am cautiously optimistic that as we gain in uh, sort of knowledge about the various different inoculations and the various different side effect profiles and, and efficacy profiles um, and the alternatives that there are, including, I mean, even this new pill by Pfizer, I mean, you know, it's Pfizer, but it's, you know, it's, it's something other than a vaccine. Um, and I kind of think one of the reasons that it may have been pushing this now is that it's reading the writing on the walls. About, about the vaccine side effects, about the possible long-term uh, you know, loss of efficacy. Um, and you know, basically it doesn't wanna be painted as the bad guy. So it's looking for a way out. And a way out is here's the new solution, right? Well, you didn't like the solution I had before, well, here's yeah, the new right. one, which is what the politicians have been doing this whole time as well, right? First of all, oh, I'll lock you down, I'll mask yeah. you up. Oh no, then I'll lock you down. Oh no, then I'll give you a vaccine, right? Let me just keep showing you how I'm a hero, right? That's what it's been about. And that's what Pfizer has done as well. So the fact that this pill is out there, at least, you know, the, a pill I think is probably preferable to a vaccine um, in the sense that you can just say, okay, look, it's available to everybody and, 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 you know, anybody can just, you can take it and you can take it in your own time or, you know, put it in a napkin or whatever you want to do with it, but at least it's there as another option. So I think that's good. I think the rapid antigen testing uh, advances are good. And, you know, well, I don't think that a lot of the early treatments that we know about uh, have, you know, have been adequately disseminated across the world, because if they were, then we would, again, you know, have a lot less uh, pressure on the vaccines being the only solution. But, you know, I do think like the pill is kind of, uh, you know, not the contraceptive pill, but the, the pill pill, you know, the, the whatever it's called pill, the Pfizer pill, <laughs> is, is an option that may supersede vaccines, you know, going forward. And in terms of air travel, you know, this notion of having a vaccine passport where it has to be updated every three or six months or something just seems, again, hugely costly. Um, I just can't see that really survive particularly when there's something like a rapid antigen test, which is reasonably cheap. You can just say, look, you know, I'm not going to be contagious if I take, give me two tests. You know, if you think I'm going to get a false negative, test me twice before I get on the plane. It's only going to be a 24 hour flight max. You know, it's, it's just the likelihood of developing symptoms in that time or being infectious if you've tested negative has got to be exceedingly vanishingly rare, right? And so that yeah. I think is probably where it's more logical that things will go, but you know, in the short run, in the medium run, even we still may be stuck with this stuff. So, now there doesn't seem to be logic playing much of a part in any of this. We've we've just had them change uh, their rules, some of the laws that they've got around exemptions here in New Zealand, and I was looking at a list of some of the specifics that they had and some of the reasons that you could apply for an exemption, which are very narrow. And mm -hmm. one of them was 
you know, if you had COVID, if you had acute COVID, you could get an exemption while you were sick. But as soon as you recovered, exemption over, baby. Wow. It's like, you know, we and, and I mean, again, also the ignorance of natural immunity. That's another thing that yeah. pull my hair out, you know? I mean, oh my goodness. I don't know if you've um, if you've seen this, but I would I would really advise your listeners as well to look at the Brownstone Institute's website. So the Brownstone Institute is the, the people who publish my book, right? And that's basically right. a one-man operation, or at least it was in May, 2021, when he started it. He came over from the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, and I mean, Jeffrey, Tucker is, a, is basically a libertarian thinker and he's had lots of different involvements with various different libertarian think tanks in the US over the course of many, many years, published many books, et cetera. But in May, 2021, he decided, look, I need to start a new institute because this whole COVID you know, liberty reduction thing is just, it's just not on. And I've got to have an institute developed you know, just for that. And as it happened in June, I sent him a, a manuscript of this book and I said, Look, my co-authors and I are planning to self-publish this. Just wanted to know if you'd have any comments because I really liked your comments in the American Enterprise Institute stuff and that, and or American Economic Institute, whatever it was called. And you know, I didn't expect him. I didn't know he was starting a new institute. I didn't know anything. I just thought he's a good guy, and I'd like to know his comments on my book, right? Um, but we were planning literally to like self-publish with maybe printers in Thailand somewhere. We had no idea. Anyway, the guy got the manuscript, stayed up all night reading it, and emailed me back the next day and said, "I've got to publish this book." You know, please let me. And I was like, "How can you publish this book?" And he's like, "Okay, so let me tell you. I'm going to do this new institute. I'm just, I just started the new, and this is happening. And can you be our first book?" And I'm really excited. So it's been this amazing serendipitous, you know, uh, meeting of minds, really. And and so because of that, you know, the institute became the, the backer of the book and and got it out in record time. I mean, I gave him the manuscript, the final manuscript, on I think about the first of August, and it was out on the first of September. Amazing. Wow. Um, and ever since they started, they have just increased and increased in their traffic. So if you go to them, they have articles up every day. They put up several articles about various different aspects of this issue. It's, it's just, it's a phenomenal look, uh, source for everything from natural immunity to um, masking, uh, you know, evidence to evidence on, uh, you know, many other different aspects of what's happened during this period and how we should move forward and, you know, political critiques and, you know, philosophical stuff, just all sorts of stuff. So the Brownstone Institute um, definitely advise that for some uh, light reading. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds good. I'll go and have a look. I, I probably have seen something. I think it's ringing a bell. Um, I've got here on my list, James, James and Jasmine's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So in the book, we basically have a, a two pronged approach. The first approach is um, a literary one where we um, paint these three archetypal characters who are named Jane, James and Jasmine. And we tell the story of the Great Panic through their eyes. Um, it's basically, uh, you know, a, a literary um, attempt to connect emotionally with the reader and, and show that different people, you know, really reacted very, very differently to the to the unfolding madness. So Jane is the scared, uh, you know, reactive sort of population member. Um, in March and April, she was the one who was putting pressure on her politicians to protect her from COVID because she saw all these images coming in from, you know, China and Rome and, and New York City and all those things. Um, and she was petrified. And she, you know, she started to just really believe that this virus was going to kill her unless drastic actions were taken. And so she was the one who really initially kind of lit the fire under the politicians who, you know, prior to that fear developing, were kind of saying sensible things in a lot of countries about COVID, you know, oh, well, you know, not that good, looks like a pretty severe flu, particularly if you're older, but, you know, generally you'd probably be fine, you know, that kind of thing. But that completely changed when Jane was found to, put, you know, to be so scared. James, the second character, 
is an opportunist. Um, it's, he's basically the person who keeps his head more, keeps his cool in, a, in an emotionally charged sort of setting, like in March and April last year, but looks for opportunities for advancement. You know, how can I benefit somehow from this situation? And he's not evil. He, in some sense, is kind of like the economic man of our textbooks. You know, he just looks for his own profit opportunity. And on the basis of that, markets work, you know, usually, <laughs> um, except when, you know, demand is so heavily skewed towards just stuff about COVID, right? And, and so so, so much else is getting ignored. So James was in government, James was in business, right? It was the James in government who reacted to Jane's cry for protection by locking her down, right? That was something that gave him lots of praise and status, right? It was a total betrayal of her, of his people, mm. but it gave him benefits, right? So that's a classic James reaction. Brett Sutton, Dan Andrews, James to a T. <laughs> um, and so then we have Jasmine, right? Jasmine is the doubter, the skeptic, basically all of us, um, and many, many more people around the world, and, and many who haven't spoken out publicly because of the, the shame and ridicule and, and rejection and bullying and silencing and everything else that we've experienced. And people see that and they think, well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm not going to say what she said. Um, I mean, during this period, I was, I was defamed on Twitter, even though I'm not even on Twitter. Um, and I was called all manner of things. I had death threats. I had, I had things sent to me that are unmentionable. Um, and, you know, like, I, I'm fortunate because I have a very close and loving group of family and friends, and I'm a very strong person. And I just basically don't mind if people disagree with me. I want to have engagement with, with issues, right? That's what, I, that's yeah. what I live for. I love that, right? That's why I became a professor. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't have that kind of appetite or don't just don't have as thick a skin and just aren't prepared to pay the kind of costs that they would be facing if they were to speak out publicly or don't even have a platform to speak out publicly is the other problem, right? They just feel like, well, I disagree, but what do I do, you know? And so I think that that group of Jasmines is the one that, you know, obviously all three of us authors are uh, in that camp. We have little excerpts in the, the book through the eyes of Jane, James, and Jasmine. And for Jane and Jasmine, we actually use words from other people, um, including you know, actual examples of, of Jasmine in different countries around the world. And same thing with Jane's, taking them from Instagram posts or Facebook posts mm -hmm. or whatnot. Um, and so that's the, that's the first prong of the book. The second prong is the social scientific egghead intellectualism kind of stuff, but we still try to make it readable. Um, we've been told <laughs> it's a page turner, even though it's written by economists. Um, and, you know, we there, we talk about um, everything from the science of viral spread to how science in general uh, got messed up during this period. It didn't serve its purpose. Uh, the crowd dynamic that we've spoken about, of course, the political economy elements, um, historical analogies to other periods. Um, and of course, you know, how are we going to get out of this? So, so many of those kinds of aspects, which are really, you know, much more intellectualized, but, um, but we try to make it in a, in a readable form with relatable examples all the way through it. So. Yeah, so I, I'm really looking forward to getting it. Is it going to go on a audiobook seems to be about the limit of what I can handle at the moment. I've got yeah. a stack of books that I just haven't been able to get to. I just, we, we so were, I'm actually, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I actually am thinking of making an audiobook version using my own voice, you know, speaking. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I'd like to do that because I think it would reach a much broader audience. And and I do have, I have a radio show, like my voice seems to do pretty well on, on air. So um, I think I'll do it. I mean, it's a it's a pretty thick book. So yeah, it could be a few hours. I don't think I'll be ready to do sometime uh, in the new year hopefully yeah oh that'd be fantastic yeah thank you i've got a couple more notes here what, what are we how are we doing for time oh we're nearly at nine o'clock um let me have a look we've i've got tyrannical leaders we could go there um or well, we, we could just go there 
<laughs> where to from here what do we do next yeah I think that's the best thing to end yeah. on so I mean the biggest lesson for us uh us authors during from this period has been that we have gotten very stupid very quickly in big nations by failing to incorporate diversity of thought when making very important decisions mm-hmm. so essentially for, through all these various kinds of mechanisms and dynamics we've been talking about alternative viewpoints have not been factored in. They have been rejected, canceled, otherwise silenced. And that makes for very stupid policymaking. Um, And the key thing, you know, is then how do we bring more diversity of thinking and diversity of perspectives, diversity of belief systems into the halls of power at times that decisions need to be made about really important things, right? Um, and so we have a few ideas about practically how to move in that direction. That's the general goal, right? So anything that people can dream up that would do that, you know, should be maybe considered, you know, diversity perspectives. Let's hear what other people think. And, and we do say in the book, like, we're just three economists, like, we can't solve the world, right? So we need people with big brains in their own disciplines and lots of experience dealing with, you know, lawyers or, you know, plumbers or whoever else, right? What do you think can be done to, to enhance the amount of diversity that we are drawing upon in our nations when crafting policy, when thinking about how to move forward. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we suggest is, is the uh, further use of citizen juries as a mechanism of more direct democracy in appointing particular leaders of, of ministries in governments. So at the moment, leaders of ministries, uh, you know, top bureaucrats are often political appointees, right? So what that does is it, it, it lends political capture to the very people who should actually be responsible for crafting benevolent policy for the people. Instead, they're captured by political mechanisms, right? Which is not good. So what we want is for representation from the whole community to be driving the the selection of the people who are actually in charge of making the policy for the people. Mm-hmm. And you know, we do have democratic elections, of course, but the problem with that is that you know you only have to do it once in a you know once a year or whatever. And you know, it's like if you spend five minutes and you know who I mean do you do your research on whom to you know vote for do you really know I mean there's such backstories about everybody you need and everybody spins a good story very difficult right to, to really do a good job of, of representing your interests when you're voting in a simple democratic election but if you are put onto a citizen jury for two months that has the task of deciding on candidates to interview and vet for the possible position of you know director of the ministry of education right you, you know, you got some serious work to do there. And maybe this is the only time you're going to serve your country like this, right? So you, you get on a jury role and you get selected and then that's the only time you do it, right? Just like we do with, with regular juries. So there's an incentive then to put out more effort to really trying to, you know, make a difference for your country and, and represent your views. Um, and that's what we want. So that's one idea. Another one is to have the government subsidize new schools of thought in different disciplines every year. So, you know, instead of sort of just having the standard Australian Research Council funding for, you know, research teams that get the tick from reviewers who are probably invested in, you know, a particular way of thinking about the world, right? Um, You say, look, people put their hands up, uh, you know, apply for a completely new different perspective, uh, you know, notion of how you should think about chemistry or how you should think about philosophy or economics or whatever. And every year the government, you know, just drops $10 million in, in some institute, some new institute, and then, you know, stops funding after 10 years. And if it's worked out by then, then fine. If it hasn't, then it dies, fine. But at least you're injecting some diversity of thought then into, yeah. into the production of science, right? So those are two ideas, there's a few more in the book. That sounds amazing, yeah, because we're we in this sort of situation. I'm sure you are too over in, in Australia where you've got a fairly kind of small pool of the same people that are just 
you know, the, in the club, right? And they, yeah. they're only sort of repeating each other's ideas and the narrative. And, uh, we just heard today that one of our modeling kind of companies that is being uh, used to pump out the majority of the modeling has been getting all the money, you know, and it's sort of- Yes, exactly. We have the same thing here, the Doherty Institute, same thing. Yeah. And then you have other institutes that are supposedly used, but really they just base their stuff on the Doherty Institute. So it's it's very, yeah, very much of an in-crowd, you know, it's kind of like a mono party as well in terms of policies, as you say, there's really not much diversity. And to the extent that there is, they're in these fringe parties, you know, that are just single issue parties. And again, you know, that's, that's better than nothing, but it still isn't bringing to the table, you know, serious diversity of views on the big issues. You, you just have to, you know, you, you form some alliance with some side and you get like, you know, this much difference from what the other side was proposing. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not helpful. So we need to, of course, be able to agree on what to do about any given situation, but we don't want to agree on how to think or what beliefs to have, right? If we erase diversity in beliefs or diversity in ways of thinking, then we erase our institutional intelligence and our capacity to, to combat future threats robustly and effectively. And that's what's happened during this period. You're not supposed to think a particular way. Very damaging. No. Very yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've got two classes of people in, in New Zealand at the moment, according to our prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's bonkers. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating chatting with you tonight. And um, I've opened up the chat for people to say their bit in there. And I see that some people would like to have hear one more time where to get your book, please. Oh, and yes. Okay. So you can find The Great COVID Panic on uh, Amazon. Um, and if you don't want to pay Jeff Bezos for it, then you can email me and I will attempt to respond. Uh, hopefully there won't be too many. I, I mean, it's literally just me. I have a full-time job, but I will try. And I've got some books on the porch uh, that I'll be sending out to people in small quantities. Um, you know, one to six books, but please no more. Um, and <laughs> also the publisher is called the Brownstone Institute. I saw some people wanting to know the, the institute name. So the Brownstone Institute, which is in the US. Uh, I think it's like brownstone.org, something like that. Uh, and also it's available on Amazon on Kindle as well. It's also available on Lulu, which is not Amazon. So that's a, another way of finding it. You can actually just find it at thegreatcovidpanic.com. Um, that has links to all of the ways to, uh, to buy it through Amazon and different countries. I don't think there's one in New Zealand yet, but there's one in Australia and also the Lulu link. So that's just um, greatcovidpanic.com. Fantastic. Well, maybe we can organize a box to get sent over to we could probably do that if it, if it's, yeah. I get overwhelmed with requests maybe that's what we could do yeah 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 it might help um just sort of speed things up and make it a little bit easier from your end too sure. yep. yeah lovely all right well thank you so much and um it's been a really great um interview with you tonight and thanks to everybody here in the chat remember that if you are um wanting to get involved with the local group please go to our website and check out the Take Action tab and join up with a local group or an industry support group. We all need to be supporting us, each other as much as we can right now. So, yeah, thank you, everybody. Thanks so much, Elia. Some people are asking for my email address. at gg.foster oh. at unsw.edu.au. I'll just put it in the chat. Yeah, I'll leave you to put it, in, put it up in the chat. And we had about, I wasn't actually keeping a very good eye on the numbers, but there was a couple of thousand of us in here tonight. That's great. And, and well the, you guys are doing a terrific job. Just keep it up. It's great service to the country that you're performing and to the world, really. So yeah, thank, thank you. So you too. You too. It's all it's all working in together, right? Absolutely. Getting, getting yep. the word out there. But yeah, that's good. Okay, well, thank you so much and take care and, uh, you know, we'll get through this. Yeah, lovely. See you, everybody. Bye. Bye.